All right, good afternoon. Uh, a warm welcome to people both here with us in the audience as well as our C-SPAN audience joining us today. Special thanks to Cato for hosting this event and to, My and to Michael Cannon, uh, the Director of Health Policy Studies at Cato for organizing today's discussion. Uh, today's event is entitled, Should Congress End the Tax Exclusion for Employer-Sponsored Health Insurance? If you're watching online, you can join the conversation on Twitter with hashtag CatoHealth and use it to tweet your questions or post them in the comments on Facebook, YouTube, or the Cato website. Uh, my name is Brian Blaze. I am the president of a new think tank, Paragon Health Institute. I served in the White House from 2017 to 2019 at the National Economic Council, uh, where I worked on several issues related to employer health coverage. I think Michael chose me to moderate today's discussion because of how sympathetic I am to his big proposal on large HSAs uh, as a way to replace the tax exclusion. Uh, and we will get to that, but first let me set the stage. What is the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance? It refers to the fact that the federal government does not tax health insurance that people get through their employers. Today, about half of all Americans receive health coverage um, through their employer or the employer of a family member. What do advocates say about the exclusion? They say it encourages employer-sponsored insurance. This is a natural pooling mechanism in which risk pools form independent of the health status of enrollees. Employer-sponsored insurance increases the incentives to work. Uh, University of Chicago economist Casey Mulligan estimates that employers and employees value employer coverage at, a, at an amount well above what they pay for it. Employers serve a valuable gatekeeper role in evaluating plan quality, which creates a more digestible set of coverage choices for employees. Many conservatives view employer coverage as the bulwark against single-payer government health care. And the exclusion is also cheap to the federal government relative to other forms of coverage for the under 65 population. On average, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the cost to the federal government in terms of foregone tax revenue is about $2,000 for a person with employer coverage, well below the $6,000 cost to the federal government for Medicaid or an ACA exchange subsidy. Now, what do critics say? Well, it's, while it's possible to view the exclusion as cheap in its comparative role, it is very expensive overall. It's the largest tax expenditure and will have a federal budget cost of nearly $400 billion this year. The exclusion encourages the purchase of more expansive health insurance, which inflates health care prices and total spending. More health insurance results in lower wages. Employee choice of plans is limited to the options selected by employers. The exclusion is regressive, meaning that the tax benefit is much greater to wealthier households than poorer households. And tying health insurance to work often means that people can lose their coverage when they get sick and can't work. Tying insurance to work also results in something called job lock, where people stay with jobs longer than makes sense because they don't want to lose their health coverage. Uh, I would say uh, that this discussion has been made somewhat more complicated since the Affordable Care Act introduced a set of subsidies for the purchase of individual market coverage. Uh, to unpack all these issues around the exclusion, uh, we have assembled a truly impressive panel. Uh, joining Michael are Amy Finkelstein, an MIT economics professor and recipient of the John Bates Clark Medal, an award given to the best economist under the age of 40. Jason Furman, a Harvard economics professor and former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and Richard Hines, a senior advisor for the American Benefits Council. And we're going to divide today's discussion into two parts. First, we'll talk about the exclusion's effects, and then we'll talk about some policy reforms. Uh, and Michael insisted that we start with some raise-your-hand questions because uh, they're fun and to get a sense of where the panelists uh, are. So I'm going to start with uh, uh, three raise your hand questions, um, and then we'll get into the discussion. So question number one, panelists. Uh, raise your hand if you think the exclusion is on net a good thing. 
Thank you, Richard. <laughs> All right, question number two. Raise your hand if you agree that current tax incentives encourage excessive purchase of comprehensive health insurance and consumption of health care. Very good, we've all passed Econ 101. Uh, number three, raise your hand if you agree that the amount that employers pay for health insurance is foregone employee wages. Three and a half hands for that one. Uh, Michael, I'm going to start with you. Uh, the exclusion is often referred to as the original sin of health policy. I believe you agree with that description. Um, can you explain why? So I've even used that description. Uh, I don't think, that, I've been thinking though that it, that doesn't really capture the breadth and the depth of the damage that the exclusion has done to millions and millions of lives. The standard economic critique is that the exclusion, uh, as you mentioned, increases uh, the amount of insurance that people purchase. It increases uh, prices for medical care and then for health insurance uh, because it insulates people from the uh, 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 cost of health insurance, so there's less price competition and lots of other, other effects. Um, but if you look at the history of the exclusion, I think economists don't even capture how, uh, or, or the standard economic story uh, about the exclusion doesn't capture how damaging it is. If you look at the effects that the exclusion has had ever since really the federal government passed the tax code and, and the Treasury Department started paying attention to whether they were going to uh, tax uh, employee health benefits or not. You go all the way back there and then you trace the effects of the exclusion, you begin to see that it has caused or contributed to just about every problem that we see in the health sector. Every problem that health reformers complain about is either directly a result of the exclusion or the exclusion makes it much, much worse. So I think a better sort of metaphor is, you remember the nursery rhyme about the old woman who swallowed a fly? She swallowed the fly and then she swallowed the spider to catch the fly and the bird to catch the spider and the cat to catch the bird and the dog to catch the cat and the goat to catch the dog and the horse to catch the goat. I think that's a much better, uh, a much better metaphor for the exclusion and even that's a little limited, but all of these things that the federal government is doing to try to fill gaps in our health sector, the, uh, the, the Medicaid program, the Medicare program, uh, uh, the CHIP program, HIPAA, um, the HMO Act of 1974, the No Surprises Act that Congress passed recently, all of these things are responses to the problems the, ex the exclusion has caused or exacerbated. And so even that, the old woman who swallowed the fly metaphor, I think that doesn't even capture how harmful the exclusion is, because the exclusion was not a fly. The exclu exclusion is like sh she left all the way to the horse and swallowed that first, and it has just been wreaking havoc with the health sector ever since, which is why I think that the, the exclusion is the most damaging thing that the federal government does in health policy, and why reforming it and even eliminating it is the most important thing that Congress can do to make health care and health insurance uh, more affordable and make health care more universal. And just one follow-up, so as a free market advocate, you think that the role of the exclusion is more harmful than the role that Medicare plays in setting prices throughout the health system? I would very much like to get to that. My answer is a very strong yes. Okay. Um, other panelists comment on uh, the effects of the exclusion? I mean, I, I would just say, Yes. Uh, yeah, so I, I raised my hand that on net, I think the exclusion uh, is, you know, cost is, is not a good thing. It does more damage than benefits. Uh, you know, I'm not sure it's responsible for every single one of societal's ills the way uh, Michael does, but the only thing I just wanted to think that it's important to keep in mind is in some of your summary of the arguments on both sides, I think it's important to distinguish between you know, reasons to dislike the exclusion, which can be separate from what you think about, you know, health insurance, you know, whether it's driving up prices, you can be supportive of more health insurance coverage, as I am, and still against the exclusion. It's also somewhat distinct, although not entirely, from whether employers provide that health insurance. So you could be supportive of employer-provided health insurance. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that I am, but you can support that with or without the exclusion. So I just think it's important to keep the, the issue separate, because I think one of the reasons, I'm guessing there's so much commonality uh, although not entirely, on the, uh, on the uh, 
uh, animosity towards the exclusion is because that is, one can dislike the exclusion while having varied views on whether we should have more health insurance coverage or whether uh, employment insurance should be tied together. So, first of all, I should say the only reason I'm here is I assumed that this was a Cato event on raising taxes, and I was so excited to be part of building the case um, for higher taxes that I just, there's no way I was going to say no. Um, the second thing I'd say is I think I have exactly the same reaction Amy had in listening to Michael, which is, I thought I really disliked the exclusion, but I'm almost feeling a little defensive, um, that it's not like the worst thing ever. Maybe it's only like the second or third um, worst thing ever, and can't we have a little bit um, you know, more nuance? But look, I do think that um, this gets at something, and I, th I think um, Cato has had things in the past of not liking this term of tax expenditures, but when you think of things in the tax code, as deviations from what you'd get in some more abstract idealized tax, and one could debate how that is, and then you start examining them like a spending program and say, we're spending $300 billion, we're spending more on high-income people than low-income people, we're spending more for this type of health plan than for that type of health plan, we're not spending anything on you if you sort of can't afford the health plan at all. I think once you start thinking of it that way, I think this is a very good sort of example um, as to why that tax expenditure concept um, is so useful and forces us to examine something that otherwise is sort of an exclusion. It doesn't actually show up on your tax form. Um, you might not examine and, and think about it and, and reach the conclusions that if you divide everything Michael said by two, I completely agree with. Okay, it's a little lonely down here representing the employers and uh, supporting the uh, current system, but I think uh, Jason somewhat touched on this by saying, well, is this the worst thing in the world or not? <coughs> I think the perspective from many of the employers is, is would be to paraphrase Winston Churchill's remark on democracy. It's the worst form of government, except compared to all the others that have been tried. Um, I, I'm not sure that we really want to be looking at the exclusion in isolation, and, and Amy really correctly points out, the exclusion is, is merely a means to supporting employer-sponsored coverage, and the real question is, what do we get from employer-sponsored coverage, and is it worth the cost there, you know, and, and I think that's a, a much, much, much longer and, and more complex debate. Covering health insurance is, uh, you know, very, health insurance is, not your standard commodity product. You know, we're not talking about toasters here. There are a lot of behavioral issues, a lot of problems with information exchange, uh, and a lot of complexities. And so I think the reason that employers uh, support it is, is largely from a position of inertia. Uh, they feel that it's necessary and beneficial for them to run their business. CEOs don't stay awake at night thinking about how am I going to spend billions of dollars on something peripheral to my business. They think about how am I going to stay competitive in the environment and in the market. And uh, the consensus view with people who vote with their money, their wallets, if you will, uh, rather than just rhetoric, is that, that there's a benefit uh, as, a, as a purely business decision given the environment that they operate in, given the culture and the, the, the nature of our economy, and really importantly, in comparison to the alternatives, just as Mr. Churchill observed about democracy. Can I? Oh. oh I was just going to respond because you said you were agreeing with me, but, but I, I disagree. I think you were disagreeing with me in the sense of, uh, if you're saying that we need the tax exclusion in order to have employer-provided health insurance, I'm not sure that's right. Um, so there's a separate view of whether employer-provided health insurance is a great way to structure a health insurance system or not. But, you know, yes, of course, if you subsidize it less, we will have less employer-provided health insurance. But the concern is that uh, we have too much of it because we are subsidizing it, and therefore workers would prefer to get wages over health insurance. But we're saying, well, if, you know, you can pay them for health insurance, it'll be, you know, 70 cents on the dollar if you have a tax rate of 30 cents. So I just wanted to be clear, uh, you know, being against the tax exclusion doesn't necessarily mean you are for or against employer-provided coverage or against health insurance. Hey, Amy. Yeah, so a little bit related to that. I mean, first of all, when I first started writing about this nearly 20 years ago, 
It definitely was my concern that the downside, if you completely eliminated the exclusion, didn't make any other changes to the health system, you could have a lot of people lose their employer-sponsored coverage, they wouldn't have a good alternative, and so that was um, you know, a legitimate concern. There are two things that have changed in the last 20 years. One is there was much less employer dropping as a result of the Affordable Care Act than the Congressional Budget Office predicted than a lot of people were expecting. And so to some degree, I've updated my view as to how um, you know, elastic employer-sponsored cover. And by the way, if Amy corrects me on anything, then I agree with her, not me. Um, uh, so I've, I've, I've updated my view on how elastic that is, and in part because employers have benefits that some of you have cited. Um, they select plans for you. They, Harvard does all this work to figure out the three best options for me, and then, Michael, I, I take the HSA one. <laughs> um, the hydroxyl one. Um, and so, you know, there's just a lot of benefits. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I assume that in addition to this being an event to, you know, sort of get everyone to raise taxes, it's also to get everyone to celebrate the Affordable Care Act. Um, that is another option uh, that people have today that they didn't have 20 years ago. And so I'm a little bit less scared about the unraveling. And I'm a little bit more willing to say whatever amount of unraveling there is, is the right amount of unraveling. If you know, alternatives are much better than employer, then we'll have less employer. If alternatives are really bad compared to employer, then we won't get much unraveling. And so if we get unraveling, it means we don't really need to worry much. Uh, to Jason's point on the uh, less employer drop than CBO projected, that's definitely, that's, that's true. Um, the ACA contained an employer mandate which penalized employers with more than 50 uh, workers that don't offer health insurance. That mandate and penalty is still in effect. Um, and I think we've seen some attrition in the below 50 uh, employer uh, uh, workforce, but not nearly as much uh, as expected. I, I, sus I suspect some of that is because of how the exchanges uh, launched initially and some of the problems with the exchanges. Um, Amy, I, so you have done a lot of great work trying to figure out how much people value health insurance. Can you give some perspective on how employees value health insurance relative to the cost of? Uh, I mean, uh, thank you for that compliment. I can't give any perspective based on empirical evidence, but I can give you, you know, what I think that the, the the basic problem with the tax exclusion is we, it almost by definition means that workers are getting health insurance that they value at less than cost, precisely because they're, you know, if the if the insurance costs say a dollar, uh, their choice is not between getting that health insurance for a dollar and getting a dollar of wages. It's between getting a dollar of health insurance or. Uh, their net of tax dollar, which might be, you know, 70 cents or something. So I think, you know, that's not to say that insurance isn't very valuable and, you know, people are willing to often pay more than the cost, the expected claims of, of a policy to buy it because they want that protection. But what the tax subsidy does is push, as Jason was saying, to too much insurance. And so that's why I guess I, I'm agreeing with him as well that to the extent that gets unraveled, and I think it would, we would have less so-called gold-plated health insurance coverage that's covering everything. That's because people would value on the margin getting the cash rather than that extra, you know, extra fancy health insurance plan. And just to double click on that on the margin point, you know, maybe we could debate is the first $5,000 of health insurance incredibly important for your life, people undervalue it, they should have to have it, et cetera, and different people in this room might have different views. But what we're talking about here is when you're going from the $6,000 health plan to the $7,000 health plan, should you think of that extra $1,000 cost of your health plan as worth more or less than getting an extra $1,000 in cash? Because there's a lot of other great things um, in the world to spend money on other than healthcare. So I think that Amy had that and knows this obviously, um, but the, once you start thinking about it on the margin and about more or less healthcare, I think it's much clearer than it, whether it's about healthcare or not healthcare. Michael. And it's not just $1,000. Uh, it's a pretty big margin. I think that one of the reasons why economists think that the old lady swallowed a fly here rather than swallowing the horse, or maybe if uh, if if Jason would divide everything I say in half, then maybe he'd agree it's a goat or a dog. I don't know. 
uh, is because there are these two threads in, in the economics literature uh, when it comes to health, employer-sponsored health insurance that economists rarely join together when they're talking about the exclusion of employer-sponsored health insurance. One is the stuff that we've been talking about, uh, the effects that it has on incentives, that the, uh, the exclusion has on incentives at the margin and how it locks people into jobs and that sort of thing. Uh, the other one, though, is, is a, has to do with the question, one of the raise your hands questions that Brian asked, which is, do workers pay for employer-sponsored health benefits in the form of reduced wages? A lot of people think that because the employer writes the check, that the employer bears the cost of employer-sponsored health insurance, and that's not the case at all. So economic theory, uh, a, a pretty robust economic literature, and mainstream opinion among health economists uh, all hold the same thing, that the employee bears the full cost of employer-sponsored health insurance in the form of reduced uh, cash wages and other forms of compensation. But unfortunately, when we have discussions about this, and I read uh, 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 studies and reports about employer-sponsored insurance and the exclusion, almost no one takes that point seriously. And when we talk about getting rid of the exclusion, getting rid of employer-sponsored insurance, no one takes that point seriously. Because what does that point mean? If we got rid of the exclusion tomorrow, and, and Jason got his wish and taxes went up, uh, by the way, there's a way to reform the exclusion without taxes going up. You know, uh, 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 talk to me after, well, we're gonna talk to, about that in a moment. But if we got rid of the exclusion, uh, if, uh, if, if we got rid of the income tax, that gives rise to the exclusion, or employers just all at once decided to drop employer-sponsored health insurance, what would happen to the uh, $1.3 trillion that, well, it's about $1 trillion that employers spend on employee health benefits. What that, what economic theory, the literature, and mainstream economic opinion says is that money would go to the workers. That should change the way we all think about the exclusion. Okay, well, I'm the, I'm the guy at Cato who really hates the term tax expenditure, and don't get me started on, on that and tax subsidy and so forth. Uh, I think it clouds the issue, and one of the ways it clouds the issue is it gets us to focus on the revenue loss of the federal government so that we don't, uh, so that we ignore, we don't focus on the trillion dollars, or really $1.3 trillion of workers' earnings that the exclusion allows employers to control and denies workers uh, control over. If you got rid of employer-sponsored insurance, that money would go back to the workers and they'd be able to make their own health insurance decisions with that money. It wouldn't be like an austerity plan where, all, you're, like the Cadillac tax, we'll be talking about that soon too, that just took money away from people. It would be a return of a huge amount of resources, workers' own earnings, to the people who earned it, and then they would be able to make their health insurance decisions themselves. And I think therein lies the key to understanding that is the key to understanding how to reform the exclusion, maybe in a politically feasible way that doesn't increase taxes. It, will, it would increase taxes on some people, but not. it, it doesn't need to increase federal revenues on that. Uh, it can be revenue neutral. Uh, but in a way that uh, uh, would still allow most people to purchase insurance tax-free, so it would be minimally disruptive. That would allow people to stay in their employer plans if that's what they choose to do, because apparently employer plans do add uh, a lot of value. Um, but we have a hard time seeing those sorts of solutions, I think, because the, uh, the uh, health economics profession and the you know, policy discussions we have here in Washington, D.C. and around the country ignore that aspect of, uh, of, of health economics, that that money uh, is the workers' earnings, uh, it by right belongs to the workers, and if we got rid of the exclusion or employer-sponsored insurance, that money would return to the workers. I think recognizing that opens up a whole world of opportunities for reforming the exclusion. Good, Amy. So, Michael, I agree with you in one sense, but then you slip something in at the end that I think I disagree with. So, yes, I very much agree, and it's a very important point that Michael raised, that when we talk about getting rid of the exclusion, uh, what we expect is that uh, employer health insurance would get less generous on the margin and employee wages would go up and then they could choose if they wanted to buy you know, more health insurance, uh, but with a, a level playing field of post-tax dollars in the same way they're choosing between you know, all the other many good things that Jason mentioned you can buy with your money, health insurance would be one of them. But, so that I'm, I'm all on board for. I don't think we should be you know, privileging you know, health insurance at the margin, but then you sort of flipped in 
we're going to get rid of the exclusion, wages are going to go up, and you're still going to be able to buy health insurance tax-free. And that was the part that puzzled me a little, because you got to close the budgets at somewhere. So if, if we're giving you a, if we're making health insurance tax-free, that's, that's going to come out of somebody's wages. So that was just the part I wanted to clarify. I'm going to get to a question uh, that in the, when we go to the reform section. But before we do, uh, Richard, do you have any? Uh, <coughs> Thanks. It's uh, tough to be on a panel with a bunch of highly qualified economists here. The, um, I think you know, nobody in, would argue that the tax exclusion for health insurance is a blunt instrument. Um, but that doesn't really distinguish it from any other elements of the tax code, whether it's the mortgage interest deduction or, or any of the others. It, it's well, can we have a panel on that one, too? Yeah, we don't, I don't, I'm against that one, too. So, yeah. What do you guys like? <laughs> the, the Low taxes. Mandates and high taxes, right, Jason? Okay, well, so Prices. you're in. So actually, Amy and I are probably far more in agreement than she wants to admit, because uh, uh, I, I, what I was uh, sort of leading up to is that I think you have to think about this in, in terms of, okay, you get rid of the, this, so what does the world look like? You know, I call this the George Bailey, it's a wonderful life thought experiment. Uh, we make this go away, where, where are we better off? Is everybody better off? A lot of things change, but on net, are we better off? And I, I think that's a very difficult, complex formulation and, and uh, a, a leap off the bridge, to, to carry my metaphor a little further, that, that a lot aren't willing to make. Um, the, the employer, if we, we take away employer, the incentive for, uh, and, this, and it's a subsidy, let's face it, for employer-sponsored coverage, where'd all these people go? Into the individual market. Well, that's kind of wild west. You know, we don't yet have a proven infrastructure that, that's going to give us the ability to price that fairly and effectively. And all these higher wages, it, there's no assurance that that's going to buy a, a similar or even equal share of uh, health insurance, uh, of coverage. Employers really feel that, that they are able to provide a, a benefit that keeps their employees out of that kind of an environment uh, and, and, and that also has some secondary effects that we haven't talked about here. There's a lot of focus on this issue of job lock, but like everything else in economics, there's trade-offs and there's the flip side of that. Employers feel that we need to bind our workers to the firm. We, we, we want, we're in a competitive labor market. We want to bring people in. We want to pay them. We want to train them. Uh, and we want them to stay long enough that we'll get some payoff for that investment in human capital. And so these benefits are, are serving a purpose of that nature. Health insurance is real, as has been alluded to. Health, it's not a good, it, you know, we're, we're, you can get a better comparison of toasters than you can of your health insurance. And there's a lot easier way to, uh, get quality assessments and so forth. And so employers often feel that, that they are simply benefiting their workers at a cost to them uh, to act as their agents. As Jason happily uh, suggests, they, they get, get us down to three choices or, or five choices. And, and uh, you can make, they, they start to introduce uh, quality measures. Uh, and and they, they are agents with real leverage in the market uh, to foster innovation and, and some degree of cost containment. Are, are the economists on the panel sort of sympathetic to this? Oh, I mean, I, I think it's a more yeah. like paternalist view. Oh, well, uh, one thing I, I am sympathetic to is I'm now going to come out as a conservative. Um, I do think there is something to conservative things. And so would I want to completely eliminate the exclusion 100% tomorrow with no other changes? I think I would actually be nervous about that. I think there's enough things that work in our current system. But I think there's a lot of things between what we have now and, you know, 100% eliminating it. And if we 100% eliminated it, I think chances are things might even be better than worse. But I'm risk averse enough that I wouldn't want to take that chance. I, so I maybe you have 100% confidence that Congress wait, will make it better. Hold on, I just let me just say you 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 touched on something very interesting, which is if in fact employers provide a lot of value by by you know bargaining with their with insurers to reduce prices, carefully curating sensible plans. 
one could reasonable people could disagree, and unreasonable people could also disagree. But, but, but if, if in fact they do that, then that almost by definition says that getting rid of or capping the exclusion shouldn't make it go, make health and employer provided health insurance go away. Precisely because, right? The, the 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 other alternative is there's no reason employers provide health insurance other than the tax exclusion. And some people say therefore we should get rid of it. It's a stupid system, job lock, yada yada. But if in fact employers provide a lot of value in providing health insurance, and I think you make some very plausible arguments, then getting rid of the exclusion won't mean the death knell of employer-provided health insurance, so we can have our cake and eat it too. So, so and, and I think the that employer-sponsored insurance can, can provide a lot of value, and the exclusion can do lots and lots of damage at the same time. So let's move on to uh, where the panel thinks ideal tax policy should be. Should the government uh, have any subsidies for health insurance and health care? tax incentive. Yeah. What are we raising our hand for? So do you agree um, in an ideal policy world, we should eliminate all tax preferences for health care and health insurance? Okay. I'm, if you're replacing them. Yeah, 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 yeah. My hand is up if, if we're going to. If, if it's an up or down. No, no, you can get rid of all tax subsidies, but the government could still, you know, provide health insurance or some, or, you know, mandate other people. So I just don't understand the question. Take out tax and say well, I mean, you would presumably, if you take out all the tax preference and subsidies, you would be lowering overall. Maybe one way to put rates. it. Maybe one way to put it is: uh, Should the government raise your hand if you would prefer tax and transfer programs to targeted tax preferences within the tax code? To and I think I'd raise my hand for that. I mean, on the eliminate the tax thing, the Bernie Sanders plan eliminates the tax exclusion because it eliminates employer-sponsored insurance. So the raising your hand on the eliminating it has a wider span of people than is It is, it is not an endorsement of single payer. <laughs> okay, let me, let me move to uh, hopefully a, a better framed question. <laughs> uh, assuming, assuming we have government health care subsidies, should policy on the margin reduce subsidies for third-party payment and redirect subsidies toward direct payment of services. You I've explained. Right, well, so an, I've, I've advocated reforming Medicare, sort of in the same way I advocate reforming the exclusion, which is get the money involved, put it in the consumer's hands, let the consumer spend it. Uh, in the Medicare context, that is, take Medicare spending, however much Medicare is going to spend, an average of twelve thousand dollars per enrollee, and add it to their Social Security check. Let them uh, uh, decide how much insurance to purchase. Let them control that money. Uh, we'd end up with much more universal health care for seniors than Medicare provides right now. So I think there's a really important problem with that approach, which is what happens if people choose not to buy health insurance? Well, I've got a good answer. Oh, good. Uh, well, first of all, there, uh, I proposed income and risk adjustment. But the, uh, the literature on how much waste there is in Medicare suggests they could waste uh, or misspend a third of that and not affect overall health. No, no, so. that's not my point. My, sorry, I was going with a different point. And, and it's why I think, you know, uh, even libertarians like, you know, Charles Murray, when they talk about, you know, we should get rid of all government, you know, tax and transfer programs, all the huge waste that the bureaucracy creates and have a universal basic income, even he says, the one thing we're going to do is, you know, in his, I think, $13,000 a year universal basic income, we're going to take back 3000 for mandatory health insurance for everyone. The reason being is that if we give people the flexibility to do what they want and they don't end up buying health insurance uh, and they end up sick and unable to afford medical care, the government, time and time again, inevitably steps in, and I'm not just talking about the emergency room. And so given that, you know, there's no, there's no state of the world in which we're not gonna do that empirically, so it seems foolhardy to give people, you know, the choice to hang themselves just to like rescue them at the last second. We are getting a bit far afield, but I'll just answer by saying that it was my answer to Medicare reform, not to Medicaid reform. And so reforming Medicare that way- The same issue comes up with Medicare. Uh, doesn't preclude, uh, uh, assistance for people with low, low incomes or so, who, who make bad decisions. Yeah, so I guess the last thing I'll say is one of the things that I think is really different from health care and health risk as opposed to almost any other risk is that it's kind of like a fixed risk. You know, you're either going to 
you know, if you get a heart attack, it's gonna cost the same amount of money whether you're rich or you're poor. So unlike most risks which scale with income, so your, the amount of life insurance you, you want and disability insurance is proportional to your income, you can be even you know, fairly high income and still get a very, very large medical expenditure and be unable to afford it. All right, we're starting to get down into the technical weeds here, but I, I would make another point that health insurance is not is, is misnamed. It's not necessarily insurance. Uh, it, I was going to say the health part was misnamed. Well, okay, <laughs> the, the, both of them are, but it, th th there's two elements there, which is is one that that Amy's referring to, which is the the possibility of, like car insurance or homeowners insurance, possibility of an unpredictable event. And then there's another element to it, uh, which is a social insurance element, which is, is consumption smoothing across generations. And part of the argument that I, from coming from a very, you know, working internationally on this and being exposed to many Europeans and, and all of their thinking is that what we have in the United States here uh, that is partially subsidized by the tax code is a hybrid social insurance program. We, we create fairly uh, minimal public programs to, to take the elderly and the poor and groups that don't respond very well, and then we incentivize the private sector to give us, uh, to create privately managed, funded, and subsidized social insurance programs that redistribute, you know, to use the R word that we don't like to say, but that, are, that redistribute value from the young to the old to smooth that over generations because one element of what we call health insurance is actually prepaid expenses. If there's one predictor, uh, you know, there's a very known portion of health expenses, which is age, and then there's a very unknown portion. And people typically, you know, the average person, normal people, non-economists, uh, are uh, not very good. I mean, what we know from the behavioral research is that people are very, very poor at estimating tail risks in the distributions and their high discounters uh, in the future. And so what we are doing partly with our uh, subsidizing private health insurance is building, uh, consistent with our culture and our history, in the environment that we work in, a, a hybrid, partly private social insurance system. And we need to be very, very cautious about dismantling that for purely theoretical reasons. So let's, um, let's talk about various options for reform, because I think everybody uh, agrees there, there's gonna be some uh, federal subsidy for health insurance. There's been a variety of different approaches for how you could address some of the problems with the exclusion. Uh, I'm going to briefly uh, name four uh, such uh, options for replacing the exclusion. One is a standard deduction for health insurance, so up to a certain amount, uh, premiums wouldn't be subject to taxation. The second would be a uniform refundable tax credit for health insurance, which is a flat credit that could be used towards health insurance. Refundable means um, that the credit could pay uh, for lower income households even who don't have income tax liability. Um, you could adjust that income tax credit as sort of a third option to make it more generous for and uh, older households. And then we've got Michael's uh, large HSA proposal. So why don't you talk about your large HSA proposal and then we can go through those four options. So briefly, the idea is to use that insight from health economics, which is that $1.3 trillion that employers are uh, uh, and, uh, controlling uh, other workers' incomes. And affect a, a transfer of that money from the employer's control to the worker's control as quickly as possible, uh, and to do that by expanding health savings accounts so that workers can take that money as cash income, put it into their health savings account tax-free, uh, and with, all, with zero tax consequences for the majority of workers, and uh, in, in fact, even for those who would see an increase in their explicit tax liability, they would still gain more control over their earnings than they do right now, than they have right now, because uh, shifting, you know, the average family plan through an employer is $22,000. That's, that's what the premium is. Sh shifting control of that $22,000 from the employer to the worker gives the worker more control over her earnings, even if the higher HSA contribution limits still require her to pay taxes on a small portion of that $22,000. So this is how uh, Jason asked, or I, I remember if it was Jason or Amy, asked, how do you still allow workers to purchase health insurance tax-free? 
if you change the exclusion from an exclusion for employer plan premiums to an exclusion solely for HSA deposits, increase the contribution limits so that most people can put the full amount that they're, they've been paying toward employer-sponsored insurance into the HSA tax-free, allow them to purchase insurance from any source tax-free, which they cannot do right now with, with an HSA, but would allow them to stay in their employer plans if that's what they wanted. Employer plans do provide value. Uh, and uh, uh, also did not require them, uh, eliminate the insurance requirements so that they can uh, pair uh, so that they can purchase um, any type of insurance. So you don't have a government definition uh, narrowing innovation in the insurance market. That, I think, is uh, the most politically feasible way to level the playing field to, to it doesn't, wouldn't get rid of the exclusion, it would change it, and it would level the playing field between employer-sponsored insurance and individual market insurance, between first-party payment for healthcare and, uh, and third-party payment for healthcare. And because it would offer an effective tax cut uh, th that would be greater than the 1981 Reagan tax cuts as a, as a share of GDP, it, it isn't like the Cadillac tax, unlike the Cadillac tax, it isn't just an austerity measure that takes things away from people. There's an actual sweetener in there that uh, anti-tax conservatives can get behind, that workers can get behind because they'll get more control over their earnings. So, um, in a nutshell. So, Michael, I want to study your things more carefully. Historically, there have been two types of approaches to this, and they both start from the observation that if an employer wants to give someone a dollar to spend on stuff other than health care, they have to spend a dollar forty. If they want to give them a dollar to spend on health care, it only costs a dollar, and so there's this unlevel playing field. Um, one thing has been to say, oh, why don't we, um, you know, solve this problem of too much health subsidy by adding even more health subsidies. And so there was um, Kogan, Hubbard, and Kessler, three economists had this proposal years ago, where it was to make all health care tax deductible, whether it was through your employer, on the individual market, out of pocket, everything was tax deductible. That had the advantage of leveling the playing field between different types of health spending, whether it was individual market, employer, out of pocket, but it had the disadvantage of making all of health spending more tax preferenced uh, relative to non-health spending than it is um, already. And at the time, I quantified it and convinced myself that it would make health spending um, go up rather than down. So I think this has to be about sort of either keeping it the same size or moving it in the other direction, not throwing um, new things at it. That's the first threshold thing. Um, the second is, yeah, of all the things you said, it, it interacts with how you're reforming the rest of the health system. You know, it interacts with whether you want to raise revenue or don't want to raise revenue. Um, it interacts um, with some of your notions of, you know, freedom and, and values and the like. You know, it helps analytically to try to separate those different things out and say, for a given level of revenue, how would you like to collect it? And then you can argue over the revenue levels, um, et cetera. But I, I like the, um, the sort of flat credit on sort of a variety of those grounds. The last one that I'd throw down on the table is Social Security. I think there was a new trustees report maybe today that I haven't seen today. Um, but, you know, we're going to go out on a limb and say it's going to be insolvent in about a decade. And there's going to be more revenue needed than Social Security. Um, applying the Social Security payroll tax to um, health insurance is, I think, one of the most efficient ways to raise revenue for Social Security. And it would automatically trigger higher benefits. I'm not saying you'd want to accept all those benefits, but then you could decide which of those benefits you'd want to claw back, and you could frame the whole benefit thing um, in a different way as well. So I, I think this is a really appealing um, step to take in Social Security. Good evening. I was just going to say uh, your proposal combines many elements, you know, as Jason was saying, and you can agree with some, like the le leveling of the playing field, and, and perhaps disagree with others, like the amount of uh, tax exclusions we're now giving. One thing I did want to flag, because in the beginning you had four options, right? And if I understand Michael's correctly, like your first option, deductible, it's about uh, making, uh, making part of what your contributions to healthcare or all of them, uh, not, not having to face your tax rate, and that's something that is going to be more valuable the higher your tax rate. Uh, that, like the current tax exclusion, one of the 
knocks against it, as I think you said at the beginning, is that it's regressive. And so if I'm understanding your proposal correctly, it has that same regressive feature as a So if you increase, if you change the exclusion from an exclusion for uh, an unlimited exclusion for, for employer plan premiums to an exclusion for HSA deposits, then the HSA deposit limit acts as a cap on the exclusion. Okay, so you're capping it at the same time that you're, okay, but what any, my, my general point was that anything that is a tax deduction is more valuable to uh, higher tax rate individuals, i.e. higher income individuals, and one of the other options that had been put on the table was a tax credit, or better yet, or a fundable tax credit, and, and I think that can be preferable uh, for that reason. So that's and that, and that point is partly, uh, you probably have different social welfare functions or idea of what's fair and just, um, but there's also an efficiency thing too, that even if we were adjusting other taxes to keep the distribution the same, there's probably not a compelling reason why you'd want larger subsidies for whatever it is you wanted in health for higher income than for lower income, even holding constant the differences in opinion but on this panel as to whether we, we care about people or not. But importantly, if we care about people, uh, which we, which, which we I know you do, Michael. That's and are that's we are we going to have a show of hands for that one? It's about people. <laughs> My hand's highest. So uh, the uh, Amy's point is correct that because of rising marginal tax rates, any tax preference, any tax exclusion for any amount of income will be more valuable for higher income people. Uh, I'm not saying this that large HSAs would eliminate that feature of the exclusion, but it would. I think for the first time uh, sustainably cap the exclusion and make it uh, so that it was not as valuable to high income individuals as it is today. And because it would do that by, uh, and, and there's another dimension to this, which is I think it would also uh, make the tax code more equitable because the cash out, if you will, of employers giving those premium dollars to the workers as cash that they would then control would mean a lot more to low-income workers than to high-income workers. Because if you think about it, Amy's had a paper along these lines. If high-income workers and low-income workers are paying the same $22,000 premium for a family plan, and the employer cashes them out $22,000, and then they get to put that in their HS some of that in their HSA, and uh, that $22,000 is a much larger share of the low-wage workers income, total compensation, than the high-wage workers. So they gain control over a much larger share of their income, and they're no longer tied to what the C-suite thinks are their health insurance needs. If they want to buy a little less health insurance, Jason's $6,000 plan instead of the $7,000 plan, and spend that extra $1,000 on housing or education or food, then they can do that, and that might improve their health more than the, the extra thousand dollars on of health insurance that the C-suite wants them to buy. So one thing to sort of say um, as sort of a meta point that I think is important, and I think I've probably been in, in the government for more than anyone on the panel, maybe everyone on the room, is I do think thinking about political feasibility is quite important. I think economists need to think about what's the best and be really clear about what they think is the best but they also need to be clear about what they think is the second best, the third best, the fourth best, and the magnitude of differences between those, and I think if they're doing that well, they're serving their job well. Um, in the Obama administration, we gave the president analysis that we thought um, capping the exclusion, shifting to a credit, a variety of these things, implemented at the individual level, would um, be the best policy in this space. Um, the president and his political team made the judgment that that was not something that they could pass through Congress, in part maybe because he had demonized the idea campaign on against the it. campaign. <laughs> um, and uh, they said... They, to us, they didn't stop him on the mandate. They, they said, uh, I don't know, we, the main thing we campaigned against Hillary Clinton and John McCain, we did versions of when we came into office on health care. Um, but, the, you know, so they said to us, you know, look, you can't do this. Um, you may think it's a good idea. We can't do it. Can you think of something else? And we, so we started to brainstorm. And the Cadillac tax is not the first best. It's, like, maybe the third best 
in our judgment, um, and we could debate this judgment, um, it was much better than doing nothing. It got a lot of what you wanted to do in terms of creating those incentives at the margin. Um, it frankly took advantage of a confusion that people had about the incidence of taxes, whether it's the employer or the individual, it doesn't really matter that much um, economically, but it does matter politically, so then why not do the thing that is politically better um, rather than the other? Again, we might disagree on the merits of this, but this type of thinking. Now we passed it, we made it a bit more Rube Goldberg in terms of negotiating um, with the labor unions. Uh, we made it even more Rube Goldberg after that. It got delayed and um, repealed. So the moral of the story is I'm still not sure um, what the moral of the story is. This part of me that thinks by doing everything we did, we actually got our foot in the door, much further into the door than anyone's foot has ever been into that door. And so figuring out how to do that and then keep your foot in the door next time um, is how you need to think about it. Um, or the other is, I don't know, maybe Michael should so spend eight years in government. So, so when, when I've already I, done four. When I left the White House, um, my first Wall Street Journal op-ed was a defense of the Cadillac tax. So this was the summer of 2019, and uh, my proposal was, because Congress clearly wanted to do something uh, to delay or repeal the Cadillac tax, and it was to exempt HSA contributions from the Cadillac tax threshold. Um, there were six votes in the House of Representatives who voted against repealing the Cadillac tax. 419 uh, to six was the vote. So I'm not, I, I'm not sure what we've learned. If I, it seems to me like what we've learned is business and labor uh, were incredibly powerful and don't want any um, uh, capping of the exclusion or addressing this, and, this well, situation. And just super quickly, and then I said, and I appreciate that op-ed. And, and what I was saying to my conservative friends, I had some friends who were saying, oh, this is such a, you know, this isn't like a well-designed thing. And I said, then write an op-ed saying you shouldn't get rid of it unless you replace it with something better, rather than going back to the alternative, which I think many of them agreed was, was even worse. Can I jump um, in here and, and with the observation that, that w if we're talking about the mechanics and, and the nice details, fascinating as they are about different ways of reforming the tax treatment, it's only half of the discussion. And, and it's got to be accompanied by some viable market where people can spend this money without some help in the intermediation. And unless you are, have 100% confidence uh, that we're going to be able to construct that, uh, an individual market uh, that can fairly equitably bring enough people in there uh, at these the, the dollars you've put in their pocket, then it's just more of an abstract discussion. And I would suggest, you know, an example here that we can look at is long-term care, where you really don't have uh, an employer has any incentive. We don't have the existing infrastructure. And, and is, this is a, a, I mean, you think Social Security Trust Fund solvency is an impending disaster. Long-term care for the middle class is, is a, a boulder coming down the hill at us. And uh, th that's a market where prices are not transparent. Uh, there aren't products out there. Individuals have a real hard time uh, making that decision subject to, you know, try and get 25-year-olds to buy long-term care. What's it going to cost in an individually priced market at 60 when you finally realize it's necessary? So you, you you, it's not good enough to get the tax right. It's, it's necessary also to have the underlying market to deliver the product uh, that, that people can buy. And, and, and I think that's why the, you, you, when you, you, know, you hear employers and, and business and labor is so powerful uh, on a lot of these issues is th it's not that they're in love with the current system at all. It's just they've been listening to Crosby, Stills, and Nash too much. And, and, you know, if you can't be with the one you love, Baby, love the one you're with. And, and this, this is positional conservatism on their part. Um, there's so I was just going to, in your question of where do we go from here, yeah. so I'm the least equipped person on the panel to answer this. Uh, you know, not only do I have no experience in government, I have no experience in anything. Um, but I, I guess your point that both business and labor you know, were supporting getting rid of the Cadillac tax, this is always confused me why labor is, is for this. And I wonder, totally naively, and so I hope to be educated, if some of it is not, you know, in fact, Michael's point that there's a confusion that 
you know, that is fundamentally coming out of workers' wages. So it, I don't under, so that's, that's my, I guess, you know, could education solve this is the stupid way of asking my question, but, but, but that's, well, that's one I, of think, the I think what happens I experience the most of the time that groups oppose things aren't because they didn't understand them, but because they did understand right. them. And, and so you have and, to and figure out tax. what it is they're correctly maximizing and solve that um, rather than hope. Now, for the public as a whole, I think it can be different. But And I'm not saying interest groups always get their interests right, but I think on this one they feel they... And, and the Cadillac tax... Something for their members. It was, was real was unfortunate. The, the Cadillac tax was pure austerity. Just, we're just, you got money, we're, we're going to take it. And you'll always find people who will push against that, the people whose money you're taking and anti-tax conservatives and so forth. Um, and and uh, it didn't really, uh, it wasn't a transformative proposal. It would just sort of uh, curb the exclusion a little bit. There are transformative proposals that Brian has mentioned and uh, Jason mentioned um, that, that aren't just all spinach, that are some dessert as well. Uh, Kogan, Hubbard, Kessler was all dessert. This is why I wrote critically about it when, when they proposed it at the time. Uh, but uh, a universal tax credit uh, would be some spinach, some dessert. Some people would see their taxes go up. Other people would get a subsidy from the government. Um, but uh, And a standard deduction for health insurance, depending on how you implement it, could be some spinach, but it too is mostly dessert. And, and I, I, I like that more than the Kogan, Hubbard, Kessler proposal. But what none of them does, what none of these proposals do is offer any mechanism for workers to take immediate control over that $1.3 trillion of their earnings that employers now control. That's why Jason's boss was so successful at demagoguing the John McCain tax credit, universal tax credit proposal in 2008 is because McCain had no mechanism for reassuring workers that first, your employer plan probably is not going to go away. We actually didn't know that at the, at the time. Uh, but even if it did, you would get $20,000 uh, additional, uh, additional cash income to help you buy health insurance on your own. Uh, and there's only one proposal that I've seen so far that does try to effectuate that, that a competitive labor market will get that money to the workers no matter which of these transformative reforms you put in place, but only in the long term. The only proposal I've seen to get that, that would put that money in the workers' hands immediately on day one is an expansion of, of health savings accounts that I call large HSAs. Um, I would love for there to be other proposals, but I think that is the big thing that trips up all other efforts to try to reform the exclusion, mm. is that jump ball about what's going to happen to that $1.3 trillion, and if we solve that, then I think reform becomes more feasible. Jason, I'm curious if uh, knowing how the ACA has played out uh, 13 years later, if you still think the advice you gave President Obama um, would have led us to a better outcome than sort of what ended up happening. On the Cadillac tax in particular? No, on oh. the, uh, the tax credit, the sort of universal tax credit approach. Oh. Look, I, I like the Affordable Care Act. I'm proud of the work I did on it. I think it's made the world a better place. Um, is there something that would have been even better than the Affordable Care Act? Of course. Um, the, you know, and partly was based on the conservative principle. The, if you like your plan, you can keep it was overstated, but, you know, it was sort of 99% true. Like, there was not a lot of people whose plans were disrupted by it. It wasn't 100% true. I, I thought 99 was actually, I seemed fine to me. The president felt more bad about it than I did, that line. Um, but, yeah, so I think some of this also does get to how conservative are you? And people actually sort of are. And a lot of health plans have foundered on the Crosby, Stills, Nash um, lyric issue. And so I think one needs to respect that and take that into account if you want to effectively reform the health system. So we're, we're down to our last minute or so. I wonder, I think um, there's different uh, ideas on where we should go in the long term. Um, and I think uh, most of the panelists agree that uh, there's problems with the exclusion, that it would be good for policy to address. Does anyone, do you want to finish with maybe one uh, policy thought or recommendation for what might be done in the short term to improve the situation? Uh, the exclusion? Yeah. I already offered it, so I'll pass. I mean, I think my attempt to offer it would violate Jason's principles of, you know, that I need to also take into account political feasibility, so I'll pass. 
I have something that's completely feasible. Um, any of you that have, I don't know, about $30 um, this summer can buy Amy's outstanding book on health reform um, that may or may not be politically feasible, but she'll at least get the royalties and, and maybe we'll have a better chance of getting it done. It's, it's just outstanding no matter what perspective you're coming at these topics from. I'd, I'd be You're going to come out against my book that you haven't even read yet? <laughs> All right, I have to admit I haven't read the book yet. You know, but I'm, I'm running right out and ordering it on him as soon as we leave here. But I, I, first of all, I, I would say let's not call it the Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Print, not, uh, young they, they did that song before Young joined, for those of you old enough to remember. But uh, I, I call it the Isaac Newton, Newton principle. Inertia is the most powerful force in the universe. And, and I think there's a lot of that going on. But it, I think they, there's room for some refinement. But it, as I was noting before, it, it, we, we can't deal with this issue in isolation. It's much bigger. There's a lot of moving parts. And it, it, we really need to be not thinking about tax expenditure narrowly and in terms of economic theory, but in the broader context of how they and their, what they're intended to support employer-sponsored insurance fit into our larger system. And what do we lose compared to what do we gain? Because economics is, after all, all about trade-offs. Agree with that. Um, thank you, everybody, for, uh, for joining us today. Uh, please give a, a round of applause for our panelists.